Welcome back to a brand new episode of Sustainably Influenced with me, Charlotte Williams. And me, Bianca Foley. This season is all about the people behind the product. In a society where everything has become so disposable and waste is one of the biggest problems affecting our society, we wanted to go back to a time where what you owned was treasured. Come with us on a journey this season where we chat with experts who are taking us back to a time where craftsmanship and ethical consumption were key, but making it suitable for today's modern society. Butchery is an age-old trade with their duties dating back to the domestication of livestock. Its practitioners formed guilds in England as far back as 1272. Even though a growing number of the population are opting for vegetarian or vegan diets, high-end butchery is on the rise, with more young people turning to roles in agriculture. I personally love going to my local butcher. <laughs> I'm laughing because I could just, I'm waiting for you to start saying stuff. I, like no, I go to my local butcher. Shout know, out to Hampstead Butcher. No, that's what I was going to say because I know that you're a fan as well. <laughs> but I personally like going to my local butcher because unlike their supermarket equivalents, ethicality, traceability and quality are among the things that actually matter. Mm. Today, we're looking at the ethics of butchery in a modern age, as well as the rise of young people turning to the trade. Love this. I'll just give you a quick story because this is not my episode, so I won't talk <laughs> apart from this. But I was in a cab, North London. Lots of black cab drivers live in North London. Yeah. And my driver used to be a butcher. And we were talking about a barbecue that I was going to have and meat and da, da da And he was like, ugh, I would never, ever buy meat from a supermarket. I was like, oh, okay. Oh, disgusting. You have no idea what goes on there. And I was like, actually... To be fair, there are a lot of supermarkets that have really good butcher sections and they work really hard on that. So I was like, mm. but also at the same time, I did kind of agree with him because there is such a difference between where that meat comes from. Yeah. But there's also a massive price difference. Um, Not always, actually, not depending always on what price, the meat is. Yeah, I was going to say, depending on what the meat is, there isn't always a price difference. But he's not wrong on how gross supermarkets are. And I've told this story before about when I used to work for a large pharmaceutical company for some of their drinks brands I don't know how oh my to, god yeah, yeah you, you changed my life we were working in their grocery section and helping to put up product and merchandise and I got trapped out the back let's just say something four-legged with a long tail ran past me mm. quite large but anyway let's get back into butchery Sorry. let's put some historical context into this because I think this season's so different to anything that we've done before and talking about butchery, people are going to be like, why are they not talking about fashion? It's because we want to talk about wider topics. So let me put some historical context into this. So the butcher was considered to be an important part of society in many different cultures, many of which date back tens of thousands of years. This isn't an isolated situation either. There is evidence of butchering tools and the art of butchering through archaic writings and cave paintings in the Middle East, Europe, Africa and North America. In these times, they were highly revered as any smith or doctor and regarded as highly trained professionals that were to be respected. So oh, wow. it's mad to think that we're going down to our local butcher, we just think some bloke that cuts up meat. Yeah, but a lot <laughs> of us aren't going down to our local yeah. butcher. No, I think for this episode, it's probably good that we start this off by saying that we're both meat eaters. Yes. Yeah, neither of us are vegan or vegetarian. Uh, try and comfort me if you will. I'm not <laughs> going to say anything. It's a personal choice. But as I'm learning more about sustainability or ethics, and I want to probably more say ethical consumption, I want to learn personally more about what the impact is on the mm. environment by what it is that I'm consuming. And I think that's why talking about a trade such as butchery and I guess in tow then 
agriculture is so important for this season. I think also something to think about. We both come from backgrounds where, so my partner owned a restaurant and your dad used to own a restaurant. Mm-hmm. So we have people in our lives that have experience in food. And I think that's really important because my partner will, he is so geeky about where he buys his food from, like our provisions, because he part. has seen what it's like and he understands, he's spoken to the Sustainable Restaurants Association and he's spoken to so many people and he knows what goes on behind the scenes. So he is like, we don't shop here, we don't eat here, we don't do this, we don't do that because he has seen it and he's like, what is out in the world is actually disgusting. So be careful with what you're putting in your body and your family would have seen lots of exciting things <laughs> in the restaurant world and where you source your food from, regardless of budget, because I think we have to be mindful when we talk about sustainability and suggesting things to do sometimes there's this connotation of it's going to be expensive Mm. but actually I found that going to the butcher sometimes for certain things like normal cuts of chicken or skewers and like little random bits that aren't expensive cuts like I have found that that has been if not the same price in the supermarket then actually cheaper yeah and a better quality of oh my god the quality is outrageous and And it lasts longer so much longer it doesn't fresh yeah and when you're cooking things it doesn't shrink nearly as much So let's get into today's article. It's called Can You Eat Meat Without Damaging the Environment? Mm. Mm, Which I thought was quite a triggering kind of um, headline right there. But there's a hell of a lot of reports and studies out there that say that a plant-based diet is the best diet. I wanted to discuss a couple of the quotes from this particular article. I mean, maybe I'll just read them and you can give me your point of view or anything that you have to add. So all meats have a higher climate, land and water footprint than the same quantity of plant-based foods. In the worst case, meat from ruminants like beef and lamb. This can be 10 to 100 times greater than plant-based foods. So a ruminant is an animal that regurgitates and chews its food and then Uh, digest it. So just to put it, so chickens don't do that. Cows, oh, like cows with their many, many stomachs and rechewing food I feel and like it. we're always in competition here and I don't eat red meat. <laughs> so I feel like whatever this is, I've won. But not because of the planet, just because of my body. <laughs> to be fair though, since last year... Yeah, you've cut down massively. I don't really eat red meat anymore and I've realised it doesn't really agree with it me. It doesn't agree with anyone. Like People <laughs> shouldn't be eating beef. My mum's recently stopped eating beef and she's realised it's the reason why she's always been feeling so sick after eating. I think we've got the same digestive issues, but we get really bloated and really uncomfortable when we eat red meat. I went vegetarian not, maybe was it two Januarys ago? And I realised how many more carbs I was eating. Oh, so really? for me... I don't know if it was an energy thing in order to feel full. I think if it was summer, like now, my diet is completely different. My diet Mm. is so completely different in the summer months where I do have more of that Mediterranean diet. There's a lot more fresh salads and grains and things like that. But in the winter doing it, I just wanted to stodge up on everything I could find that was like bulky. (laughs) Yeah, I can imagine. But the thing is, we don't really talk about this. People are like, go vegetarian, go vegan. But you actually have to do things to ensure that you can sustain yourself so you Mm -hmm. need to up your supplements yeah so another one whilst we're on the environmental impact and talking about just the climate and agriculture chicken and pork have a lower climate footprint than ruminant meat as they do not produce methane like the ruminants do but the downside is that they are not able to eat grass so compete with humans for plant-based foods Mm. so for somebody who has more chicken in their diet am i doing a disservice 
by, by cutting out red meat and eating more chicken. But, like, aren't chickens going to exist anyway? Do you know what, what I mean? you mean? <laughs> but I don't, I don't understand the quote. Like, it's like we're competing for the same kind of food. Yeah, but it's more to do with the environmental footprint. So the other ones... So I like having to make chicken feed and stuff. Yeah, and things like that. So chicken and pork has a lower climate footprint than beef and lamb. But in doing that, you've got to produce the feed. You've got mm. to produce all these other things in order to sustain those animals. So there's still an impact there. So it's just the argument that is there a meat that's better? The final quote, and this is quite a chunky one. There are studies that show that buying British meat is a great way to mitigate the impact caused by livestock and meat production. So I guess the idea is buying locally is better. Mm -hmm. So in 2013, a report by the UN's Food and Agriculture Organisation stated that beef produced in Britain and the rest of Western Europe is two and a half times more efficient than the global average and four times more efficient than some other parts of the world. That's partly due to our climate. Obviously, we've got much higher rainfall here, so it means that grass grows really well, living in this rainy, rainy place. But more than half, so 65% of British farmland is only suitable for grassland. Yeah, I've had this conversation with a farming expert, and we don't use our land appropriately. Yeah. But it's to do with the war. After the war, everything changed in terms of our agriculture. And, and what, we never went back? Or? Yeah, but it's something to do with... After the war, we were encouraging people to go back to like normal society. All the land had been like bombed and whatever. Mm. So they were encouraging people to do certain things. So it was like you have a, a chicken farm, you have a cow farm, you have a pig farm, whatever. And it's still with biodiversity. So they weren't like moving around. So the land now isn't good enough to grow like oh, okay. multiple things. And all the green has been used from the cows. And then the chickens have done like whatever. If you're an expert and you're listening to this, I'm really sorry for cocking this up, but <laughs> pun, pun intended. But um, it's to do with the biodiversity or the lack yeah. of biodiversity from how after the war people were told to. So it's quite highly intensive on that particular part of the land, yes. I'm guessing. So then nothing can regrow yeah. because they're not putting back into. Exactly. Okay, yeah. fair enough. So in a nutshell, <laughs> was that. So as I said, 65% of British farmland is only suitable for grassland. The most efficient way to turn this inedible grass into high quality, nutritious protein is to graze livestock. So you have to then bring animals yeah. to graze in order to encourage the ground to grow the grass again. But this stat actually says at the end, and it says arguably this is providing the most climate-friendly way of feeding our growing population. So I think it goes back to what you were saying about biodiversity, where everything sort of works together. Yeah. We have trained our agricultural workers or owners to do things like split. So this is yours, this is yours, this is yours. Mm. Whereas we do need to be doing it all together. Yeah, I think so. And I think it goes back to those ancient times that we were talking mm. about at the beginning, because... For me, culturally speaking, in Judaism, we're taught about giving the land a year to rest. So there's like a sabbatical year where you don't grow anything on a piece of land to allow something to rest and then you can start growing again. Mm. So when you're saying it, it's making me think of those things. Don't know why I'm thinking about religion at this moment, but... <laughs> eh. Always comes back. <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted to talk a little bit about the rise of butchery and trades and it as a growing trade in like a post-pandemic world. Yeah. So I think a lot of people during the first lockdown 
<laughs> were sort of panic buying products and specifically meat. Mm. And I think where the supermarkets were running out of things, people were turning back to their local butchers, which is amazing. And they were buying a lot of products like mints. I think things mm. that they could freeze and bulk buy oh, and yeah. weren't super expensive. But then as that sort of first year of the pandemic went on, consumers were spending a lot more money on higher quality products and higher quality meats because we couldn't go outside or do anything. So they were essentially spending money to have that restaurant experience but at home. Oh and God, loads yeah. of people were turning to this. The reason why I wanted to talk about this is because I know that we both did that. Yeah, Massive. Well, I've always shopped at the butcher, so that yeah. wasn't really new for me. But something that was new. I meant was, more the restaurant side of things. Oh, the restaurant. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the, I was going to the fishmongers. I know this is not about this topic, but it's a similar kind of vein. Mm -hmm. But I was going to the fishmongers and we were having fishmonger Fridays and we were doing like restaurant style, like fish dishes. When I say we, there's a royal we. Like I don't cook in my house. So I was doing <laughs> the pouring the wine, putting the plates down, making the place look nice. And then my partner was cooking the food. But we were doing a lot of fancy restaurant style stuff yeah because people didn't have money to spend and I yeah. think that led to this increase of these high-end butchers on the high street mm. and I think so many more people feel comfortable going into these butchers now because they are educating you in a way that you can't get from a supermarket so if you go and ask a question in a supermarket and I have experienced this where if you walk in and you ask for something quite niche maybe or quite a specific cut of meat or fish or whatever you kind of get looked at really blankly. <laughs> like, it's not on the huh? list. It's not one of the top five sellers, so we don't sell it. Uh, but if you go into these highly specialised craft or trade stores, yeah. for example, the butcher, you're going to be able to get the education and understand that farm to table journey in a yeah. much more thorough way. And you build a relationship because yeah. this season is all about the people, yeah. as you you keep saying. And... I think it's so important for us to take it back to that and remember at the end of the day, I think if there's somebody educating a consumer about why it's better to buy from a local butcher and what it is that you're buying, that they will then pass that message on to somebody else and educate somebody Yeah, on that message. I'm totally there with you. Also, you just get more jokes at the butchers. Like my, <laughs> the other day I went to the butchers and I had my dog. My dog doesn't like to stay outside. He's got attachment issues and I couldn't bring him in. So the younger butcher, she came out and she held Prince and then the butcher served me and then he came out and they were like playing with Prince, like having a great time. And I was just like, you can't get that, you know, in your local Tesco. Yeah, you can't get that in the supermarket, can you? I wish that I could take the dogs in, but they're also insane. So I would never take yeah. my dogs anywhere like that. <laughs> One dog gets to go everywhere. Meatloaf, he's Aww. a good boy. Anyway, getting back onto the topic. A nationwide survey of 2,000 meat eaters by the HCC and Kantar revealed 33% of shoppers were now prepared to spend more money on higher quality cuts than before the pandemic. Mm. I found that really interesting because I think it's shown that even though we are living in a cost of living crisis and this study all right was from a year ago so maybe before people were oh, feeling yeah. the crunch so much more but it's interesting to see that people in that sort of midpoint of being <laughs> prisoners in their own home that they were willing to spend so much more on yeah. something like before that I had to make my money stretch a lot more. And if you could divvy up the cost, like I wasn't spending money on travel, I wasn't spending money on this or going yeah. out, I could put it to things that I wanted to spend on to improve my quality of life for that moment. Yeah. So for me, I found that stat really, I think, eye-opening and gave me a moment to reflect on my own consumption. 
Yeah. Do you think that you would spend more now, given that we're in a completely different, I guess? I don't think I'm the target audience. My partner essentially is a chef and an ex-restauranteur. We've always eaten Mm. really good quality food. Even when we were like really young, Mm. he would prefer to go to a butcher and get a proper cut of meat than go to a supermarket unless it's like a supermarket that we know do well. there are some supermarkets that oh, have really yeah. good butchers like at Morrison's Morrison's great butcher oh, great fishmonger Morris, Morrison's is my favourite <laughs> supermarket they've got everything I'm obsessed with it I particularly like their ethnic vegetable section because they've yeah. got their world food section another supermarket that I think is really good and this is something that I learned after going to their press day John Lewis and Waitrose the obviously Waitrose being the supermarket Yeah. all of their farms everything is in the UK and they try not to create any waste. Every byproduct from or a waste item from something that they're producing, they use to make something else. So their sheep that they use for your lamb, they will then use the wool to fill pillows and oh, bedding wow. and things like that. So they try to do whatever they can. They've got wildflower fields and things around the farms. That's and amazing. that's what they use to... Like the bees and Yeah, they use the bees and pollination, but then they also sell... Some of the wildflowers as well, so for the floristry side of things. Oh, wow. So there are a lot of quote unquote high street supermarkets doing very good things. Do you know what? I think probably more so recently in like the last maybe five, ten years. And maybe they're seeing a rise in people going to butchers and being yeah. like, you know, we want this. They're having to do that. I don't know where all of them get their meat from, but I know a lot of them do do it locally. So I feel like butchers in supermarkets are a thing. But I'd be really interested to see what a local butcher, like external from supermarkets, what they would think about supermarket butchers, understand like what the difference is. Because I imagine there are butchery teams that would have to be trained. Maybe we're not seeing them in our local supermarkets. But I know for a fact there are butcher professionals in supermarkets because I've met one. But I don't know like how much that streams down to the individual supermarket. Yeah, no, that makes sense. One thing that I also wanted to highlight was the fact that we're seeing, I mean, depending on where you live, Mm. there's normally butchers in most areas. And I'm in South London and you can't really go up any high street in South London without finding three or four halal butchers, which is my dream. (laughs) Give me a Turkish supermarket. Give me a halal butcher. I'm a happy bunny. (laughs) Um, But you're not seeing necessarily the same type of butchers in more affluent areas, they're a lot more boutique Yeah, mine's boutique Yeah, a little bit more high-end. And we're seeing a rise more in those types of butchers, Yeah, which is, I think, quite interesting. But over the past sort of 10 years, I think there's been a big call for young students and school leavers to head into butchery as a craft, yeah. which is really incredible. And I found a stat that in 2021, the BBC reported that the Association of Independent Meat Suppliers claims the industry currently has around 14,000 job vacancies. So this was last year. So That's my, I'm sure they haven't filled. 14,000 jobs in one particular industry that already is thriving and you've got that many vacancies. That's why yeah. I think we need to start pushing these school leavers into these forgotten trades, these trades and forgotten jobs. Says Don't us wor- become a YouTuber or an influencer. <laughs> Says us working in digital marketing. Yeah, I know. I hate it. It's like, don't do what we're doing. Go into a trade. Like, that's where it really like, gets the good stuff. 
If you guys could see Charlotte's face right now, but oh, we are recording. But if you're just listening to this, she was really passionate and like right through her teeth, the fists <laughs> in the air and everything. So now we're going to go and speak to our guest for today. We are speaking to Glenn Burrows, co-founder of The Ethical Butcher, just to further our understanding of butchery. And we're going to be discussing something that we've spoken about in a previous episode from season four, which is regenerative farming and agriculture. Ooh. So, yeah, keep listening. Thanks for joining me, Glenn. Thank you. Can you tell us a little bit about The Ethical Butcher and what it is that you're doing to promote sustainable agriculture? Sure. It might be worth me giving you a bit of the backstory to the business because I've come at it from a slightly unusual angle. I originally did a degree in food science nutrition. I stopped eating meat in 1989 when the BSE crisis broke and stayed that way for the next 25 years. And I was a very long-term vegetarian. I was, you know, half-decent cook and I was eating a wide variety of beans and pulses and soy-based things. And after a while, I just wasn't doing very well on it. I started to kind of re-examine my own health. And a friend who'd been a very long-term vegetarian passed me a book called The Paleo Solution Diet by a guy called Rob Wolf, which I read with an open mind and then decided that the information was compelling enough for me to try reintroducing meat back into my diet, which I did, uh, just as purely as an experiment. And all the lights switched on. I felt like a different person very, very quickly. So I realized that I'd been seriously depriving myself of some key nutrients, whether it was poor planning or bioavailability or genetic factor that was preventing me from absorbing things, whatever it was, that very, very quickly after eating meat again, I felt like a different person. That health gains continued over the next few years. I'd had some autoimmune conditions that went into remission. I started to put on muscle, lose body fat. I could fast. I wasn't hungry all the time. My general kind of life energy was restored. So one of the things that sort of came out of that a lot of those early paleo books particularly was looking at the importance of well-raised animals, so grass-fed, pasture-raised, no grain feeding, and avoiding industrially produced meats. And of course, having taken the moral stance of vegetarianism for 25 years, I was struggling with the transition. So I wanted to make sure I was doing everything as well as I could. Started shopping at farmers markets. Sometimes the farmers didn't really seem to be able to answer all my questions about how the animals were kept, what they'd been fed throughout their lives, so I started looking at online farm shops and buying meat online that way. And really, it was a pretty disappointing scene out there for me. I, I really couldn't find the place that I thought I wanted to buy meat from. And having spent 20 years as an advertising photographer and working in advertising, marketing and magazine editorial, I even called a couple of the farm shops and said, look, I like your product. The rest of your business is absolute crap please let me help you make this into something good. You need branding, you need some clear propositions, you need a mission statement, you need better packaging, and nobody was interested. And then about two years before the lockdown, so about five years ago now, I was introduced by a mutual friend to Farshad Kazamian, who's the founder of The Ethical Butcher. And I met him simply because he needed a filmmaking for a crowdfunding campaign. He was a meat trader, buying meat out of Smithfield, supplying it to restaurants. He wanted to expand his business so that he could actually have a unit to do butchery in. And then thought, well, if I've got a place where I'm cutting for restaurants, I could also sell online. When we met, he said to me, look, we haven't really gone too deep with this, but I want to do things better. I'm concerned about the environment and there's a, bit, a lot of backlash coming for me. 
And he actually told me about an organization called the PFLA, which is now renamed Pasture for Life. And it's an organization that guaranteed that the meat coming from the farms or the animals on those farms that were certified were 100% pasture fed with no supplemental grains. We sort of made that the starting point of our journey. We decided to be a company that would bring those farmers produce to market through a digital platform. And the more and more and more we started understanding about what those farmers were doing, we realized that some of them were doing techniques that could be considered regenerative. And regenerative agriculture now is a pretty well understood term, but four years ago, a lot of people didn't know what it was. And when we became aware of the, the role of grazing ruminants in actually restoring biodiversity, restoring soil carbon and restoring soil fertility, and the methods these guys were using to do it, that was it for us. That was the starting point of like, now we've got our USP, now we've got our business. So what the ethical butcher is now, we're an online platform. All of the meat that we sell has been sourced from some form of regenerative agriculture, whether that's poultry, pork, lamb, beef, or even game. The animals have had a benefit to the environment in some way. That's our starting point. That's really, really interesting. And it ties in very well with everything else that we've spoken about in the episode. You mentioned a couple of really poignant things when you were speaking there. And one of them was about that paleo book, because my mum was a vegetarian for years. And that was the same book that she read. Oh, no way. Okay. She's an alternative practitioner. And for her, she started reading more about how she could reintroduce different vitamins, minerals, how to improve her quality of life. I mean, I've since obviously read scores of books, but the thing about that book that's really, really good in particular for anyone sort of on this journey is that it very clearly explains the role of all the different hormones in your body. And for me, it was so simple, the explanation of how all these things work. And it made me realize a lot of people, myself included, when you're on a vegetarian diet, you are by default on a pretty high carb diet. Yeah, definitely. Therefore, your body really isn't trained to use fat as a fuel. And when you kind of break that cycle, it was actually pretty difficult. The first couple of weeks where I decided to go into ketosis and, and train my body to not be reliant on this carbohydrate hit where you're on the sort of insulin roller coaster all the time. When I was vegetarian, I used to have to carry energy bars in my pocket because every two hours or so I needed to eat something. Otherwise, I'd get this sort of tunnel vision and get really hangry. And once I broke that cycle and I could sometimes forget to eat and miss meals, particularly if I was working hard, I was on a shoot and everything's kind of going well and you've got that energy. I get to the end of the day and realize I haven't eaten anything, but I still feel great. In fact, I felt very clear headed. It's amazing, really, isn't it, when you think about it? The other thing that you mentioned and leads in very nicely into my next question was about regenerative farming. It's something that we've spoken about on the podcast before, but with regards to fabric production, and we were talking to a silk company on the season. So we wanted to speak about it in a little bit more depth this time around. And with regards to the meat and agriculture industry as a whole, where can changes really be made and how can more farms incorporate those regenerative practices into their supply chain? This is a very, very good question, and I think it needs to come at policy level. And uh, last week, I was at somewhere between a conference and a festival on regenerative agriculture called Groundswell. If you guys don't know about it, you should go next year. It's usually 22nd, 23rd of June. It's just outside of London. And the last talk that I went to at Groundswell was regenerative agriculture to influence policy. And there were four MPs on the stage talking about how to integrate regenerative agriculture into our food and agriculture policy. And it's the very, very first time that I could see a potential benefit from us being outside of 
the, the European Union, because now the European subsidy is going to end. And the British government now have a role to choose how they want to support farming and agriculture. And there is some very, very serious thought going into how that could be linked to things like carbon sequestration, biodiversity increase, actually paying farmers more to not till, but to drill, to introduce, reintroduce animals into crop rotations to restore the fertility. But really, I think it's going to come from two places. The thing I believe in most, because of you know, our long history of working for magazines and advertising, is consumers driving the change. When consumers are asking for a particular product that's verified to be regenerative, farmers will start shifting in that way to make it. Generally, I think farming's a difficult job. There's a lot of uncertainty and there's a lot of fear as to whether you're going to get the results you need from every year. You've got one chance of making money and it's a very difficult thing to do. It's very difficult. A lot of farmers are also very old, so change doesn't come naturally to them. But change will be driven by what people are asking for. So that's one way. The second way just has to be policy. So consumer change and government policy, when those two become aligned, I think the change will happen. That's fabulous what you've just said there, because you said a lot of farmers are old. (laughs) And it's true, a lot of farmers, it's sort of a legacy career, isn't it? They've taken a farm from their parents and their parents before them. Yeah. Leads me into another thing that we wanted to discuss with you. It's about young people. And um, earlier on in the episode, we spoke about a stat from the Association of Independent Meat Suppliers, which said that there are currently 14,000 job vacancies in the agriculture. I think it's actually in the butchery space. And that was as of last year, so 2021. So, I mean, you personally, you work in this industry. I know you're not a butcher per se, but you have, I guess, a very, very first-hand experience with what's going on. Have you seen a rise in young people getting into butchery as a trade? And why should we essentially be looking at getting more young people into this career? The first reason is that there are so few people doing it and so many jobs that it can command a very high salary. You'd be really surprised how much a head butcher can get paid. I mean, you did tell me offline and I'm a little bit shocked. That that would be somebody who would be mid-level. If you're a head butcher and you're overseeing other people, it would be more than that. There is a severe lack of people with the skill set. And in fact, some chefs have migrated into butchery. But on the other hand, it is also a pretty hard work job. I mean, particularly if you're doing whole carcass, if you're breaking down an entire cow, it's hard work. There's a lot of dangerous machinery. However, it is also a complete craft. And interestingly, we're getting contacted quite often by young people who are really interested in getting into agriculture because of the regenerative side of things, who are working out... How can I be part of a cooperative or a small holding? Or how can I have a stacked enterprise venture on somebody else's farm? And really, I, I kind of see the future of farming as this, of like people getting interested in wanting to make a difference, wanting to produce food. A great example is if you, for example, you want to produce poultry and you don't have any land of your own, some people are going, okay, I know about this method of producing poultry where they rotate around the land following cattle in a holistic planned grazing and the poultry are going to benefit the land. Well, farmers are starting to be open to the idea of like stacking enterprises on their land and either renting space and having experts come in and do things. And it's a real good entry point for somebody young and entrepreneurial who has this very eco-minded drive to make a difference in the world. And it's a really good entry point to getting into agriculture. That's changing. And there is almost this kind of slight hipster underbelly that's coming through into the regenerative agriculture movement. 
we do desperately need more butchers. We need people who are interested in food and who want to learn a trade. It's fantastic. And I think this is why this season for us was so important for us to highlight these different crafts and trades, because our generation or the generation after us maybe are the ones that are going into their careers in a completely different mindset. And whereas 15, 20 years ago, everybody was told to go into tech, go into marketing, go into all of these jobs. And there's been like a distinct lack of medical jobs or people doing other things. But now we're seeing people going back into these quote unquote trades or crafts to create a career that is a lot more wholesome as well. I think the other aspect is the amount of student debt that people get into these days. I mean, I was lucky enough, I went to university when we still had grants, not loans. And I was protesting the grants, not loans when it came in. And that came in partway through my degree. But the thought now of going to do a degree where you're going to end up in six figures of debt and not know what kind of job you're going to get at the end of it, or you've got a brain on your shoulders and you go into an apprenticeship and then think, well, this is a trade. Well, I mean, yeah, go and be a plumber or a butcher. You'll probably make far more money than your mate who's got 90 grand of debt and has gone into junior banking or something. As to that. it's just it's a very strange world isn't it we've all been pushed to do certain things and now everything is changing and I think for the better in some way my final question for you is something that we haven't really spoken about but something that I'm personally quite interested in because I never know if there is more of a benefit leaning towards going to lab grown meat or something like that because there's a huge amount of promo behind it and marketing spend and you're seeing it in lots of advertising And lab-grown meat seems to be the next big thing. So it's said to cut down greenhouse gases by 96%, according to Oxford Uni. Do you think more butchers will move away from traditional practices in favour of plant-based or lab-grown alternatives? What's your kind of stance on this? So the lab-grown meat one is a very interesting topic. I don't think it's going to go away anytime soon for the simple reason that it's monetizable. It's very hard. There's no money trail behind regenerative agriculture. All you need is sunlight, rainwater, and some cows. And I think this is a huge threat to finance and industry. It's very hard for the financial institutions to work out how they can monetize nature. And that's what we're advocating to do. So when we look at future food security, there's a fantastic document that was just put out by the Sustainable Food Trust called Feeding Britain. It's free to download on their website. And it looks at the difference between land sharing and land sparing. So what you've described there is lab-based meat. That would be described as a land sparing method of food production. However, the big caveat in that is that people assume that lab-based meat, you just need a lab and it makes meat. It requires inputs, and those inputs need to come from agriculture. That agriculture is going to be a monocrop system. You need inputs of amino acids, you need fats, and they need to be grown, and they need to be grown in a field. If you're doing that without the use of animals in the system, so you're doing that traditionally, you're throwing on MPK fertilizer, using insecticides, you're still not solving any problem. To me, the the most sensible thing to do is have the animals that you're eating interact with the land to the benefit of the land. Share some information with the the soil biome. Take nutrients from the land. My big fear about lab-based meat is that our bodies wouldn't really understand the genetic information coming from that food. It would be, by definition, a generic product. However, I think the future will involve a mixture of land sparing and land sharing. So the idea of land sharing is that we develop agricultural systems that look as close like nature as possible. 
So the idea that you would not see fields, that you would just have trees, scrubland, it would look like nature, but actually be producing food for us. That's the sort of utopian end of a land sharing exercise. Crops would be integrated. There'd be undercropping and overcropping. You'd have orchards with pigs grazing and sheep grazing all in the same kind of place. And it mimics nature versus rewilding all that land and growing your food in the lab. I think, to be honest, much as it irks me, that the future will be a combination of both those systems. I think we will have areas of land that are rewilded, properly rewilded. I think we will have vertical farming, uh, particularly for things like salad leaves and microgreens and stuff like that. I really have no problem with having a garnish grown under a UV lamp in a disused car park in a city centre. I don't think that's a waste of time. I do think, though, that lab-grown meat is a myopic solution to a problem that shouldn't really exist if we farm things correctly. I love that. That was a very great, succinct way of summarising it. And I think it is a very myopic problem. So, yeah, fabulous. But I just want to say a massive thanks for joining us. And You're very welcome. Yeah, we hope to speak to you soon. Thank you so much, Glenn, for your time and for sharing all of your wonderful knowledge with us mm. yeah so let's move on to the i'm not going to do a jingle this season but dun, 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 dun. <laughs> the sustainably influenced sustainability score i think we can kind of put a different spin on it in the sense that we know that butchery isn't the most sustainable practice or production in the world we know that there are things that are contributing to the environmental crisis but butchery done in an ethical way and where we're looking at furthering the next generation in that sense Mm -hmm. of butchers looking at biodiversity looking at regenerative farming and agriculture what sayest thou (laughs) do you know what i find the meat conversation quite difficult because i consider myself a flexitarian so i eat everything and i always have done I, but can we just caveat that by saying you say you eat everything, but there's a lot of things you can't eat. No, no, I I can't eat them, but I do eat them. (laughs) So I do eat everything. Apart from I don't love okra, but sometimes I eat it because it's not slimy and that's okay. I just don't like slime. Yeah, when it's not slimy, it's cool. But I don't really like cheese generally, as you know, but that's why I've got you in my life. Um, (laughs) My face dropped every time she says she doesn't like cheese. Coming from the person that doesn't eat cakes, let's just not. Let's (laughs) not. But that's why we're friends because we're balancing each other out. But I eat pretty much everything and Mm -hmm. I think... My mindset is don't eat too much and find a good place to buy it within your budget. Like mm-hmm. I find everything is always to do with how much you earn, how much you're able to spend on things. Mm-hmm. Obviously, if we were all rich, we'd be able to buy the most high quality sourced meats and it would all be like super sustainable. But unfortunately, that's not where most of us are in our lives. So I'm a big fan of just not eating too much. I generally eat meat when I go out and then have it like maybe three times a week or twice a week at home Mm. I get a lot of my food delivered to me so I've got a grubby box subscription which is vegan I do a lot of all plants orders which are vegan just out of ease and they're just really nice but I don't think it's bad to eat meat and I I, come at me eco warriors doing it in moderation isn't bad yeah I get what you mean just don't eat every day don't eat loads of it try to eat less 
beef and lamb. Like it's gross anyway. So what? Well, I don't know why you're eating it, but whatever. It's a personal choice. <laughs> it makes me feel <laughs> lamb. I've never like I used to eat when I was younger, and then something must have happened to me, and I had a massive turn. Now the thought of lamb makes me feel physically sick, and I don't know why. But going back to the score, I don't know what I'd score it. Scores out of ten. I think sustainably wise. I'm speaking with Glenn, understanding the practices. It can be really great. We can be pretty ethical and pretty eco-conscious with our sourcing of meat mm-hmm. and how it works. I'm down with that, but not everyone is doing that. So I'm going to say, I'm going to just go on a six, just not in the middle, just yep. a bit over. I think that's where I would have placed it around a six because exactly those same reasons. I think it's to do with how much you consume and that's something that we yeah. keep we keep talking about season in, season out. We're just it's personal. It's a very, very personal choice and I think it's a decision that you have to make within yourself. If you choose not to eat meat and that's because of veganism or vegetarianism or whatever label you want to put on something and then you're taking 20, 30 flights a year. I'm not saying it's wrong, yeah. but I'm saying you have to think about your impact and measure your impact and do it within your own conscience. I got called out the other day and I was like, guys, I don't know why you're coming for me. So <laughs> immediately, my fiance was out with his mates and they were talking about the dress code of the wedding. And he was like, Charlotte really wants people to rewear old clothes that they have, nice pieces, but like older bits, stuff that they've worn to don't weddings rock up before. In a suit. <laughs> yeah, don't rock up in a tracksuit, but look nice in something you've worn before. Or like mm-hmm. rent a piece, whatever. She's really into that. And one of his friends was like, mm, yeah, but your wedding's abroad and you're flying. And he was like, oh, yeah. And I was like, obviously, I know that. So we're looking into offsetting, which is fine. But I'm not saying this is a sustainable wedding. (laughs) I've never said that. I just said, and consciously for fashion, I would prefer. And it's not even, for me, it wasn't even about sustainability. It was like, I don't want people to spend loads of money buying like fancy dresses to keep up with appearances when they could just use something that they already have. And I'm sure they've got beautiful things in their wardrobe. But we'll come back next season to talk about weddings because that's going to be in our... um, It's exciting. Season seven. Yeah. So, yeah, I would give it a six anyway. You're saying a six. That seems to be our sweet spot anyway. Solid six. Solid, solid six. So thanks for joining us and we will speak to you guys next week. Sustainably Influenced is hosted by Bianca Foley and me, Charlotte Williams. This season was produced by Content is Queen, sound edited by Amber Miller. And a big thanks to our researcher, Anna Stoney. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to your podcasts.